Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. Amen. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, for those who may not know, my name is Quincy, and I just have the pleasure of being a brother here at Eastside and loving on you. My family, we love, we love Eastside. Um, couple family announcements in regards to me and Alexandria. You know, we, so, we told you last time about us being pregnant. So we found out what we're having. And it's a good thing. I mean, you know, there's only two options, uh, according to some. We're having, so we're having a boy, and so we're uber excited about this. Um, however, though, we really wanted a girl, but the Lord is still good, nonetheless, nonetheless. Um, Kal-El, if you ask him, he'll tell you what he thought. Uh, he still thinks we're having a daughter. So we're excited for that. These last two weekends have been amazing for, for us, the Robinson family. So Father's Day weekend, I hope everyone had a good Father's Day weekend. Appreciated your fathers. Well, we went to go see, remember our um, worship leader, our old worship leader, Johanna McCoy? The singer, ooh, can't she sing? So she invited us out to a brunch spot. It was at a bar. It was gospel music at a bar. Okay, <laughs> I just, that's only in Portland can you get that kind of thing. Get some gospel music with a cocktail, you know. It was, a, it was a good time. And then afterwards, we went to Envision Golf, ran by our sister and brother Martha. Man, that was fun. That's fun. Met my brother Ignacio there. I suck at golf. Like, I'm, I'm horrible, but they were patient. If we have any men or women out here who like who likes to golf, we're gonna hit them up and enjoy and have a good time. Pete endures me. Pete is a, is an excellent golfer. He uh, he still lets me play with him for now. Um, and then this weekend, yesterday, the kickoff for Summer Saturdays was amazing. Wasn't it? All? I mean, I had a lot of fun. It was awesome. So. Come to the next one. Come to the next Summer Saturday. Have fun. Thank you, all the volunteers. Wow. Thank you so much for your service. Um, shout out to Ben Swanson, where has been at. Man, awesome, man. That man was, uh, you know, and, and all the others as well, but a special shout out to you, my brother. Okay, so we're very excited. Let's dive in to what we have in store today. Our passage is going to be Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 23 to 25. Luke 9. 23 to 25, and I'll be reading the New Living Translation for more dynamic uh, feel, okay? Here's what the passage says. Then he said to the crowd, the he there is Jesus, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? Wow. Keep that pin on verse 25. We're going to dissect that later on. My theme today is on redeeming happiness. Redeeming, reclaiming from the culture happiness. The surest way to be unhappy is to give your life not for somebody else, but to give your life for yourself is the surest way to be unhappy. Coming off of the Holy Spirit-prompted series on unity, family, and hospitality, that whole couple weeks we did, uh, we did sermons on that, that was not planned. That was totally the Holy Spirit. And I know that uh, some of you have taken to heart what Pastor Mike and the other pastors and leaders have been saying about becoming a family, and I just want to encourage you to keep doing that. Keep introducing yourself, 
to people multiple times. Please introduce yourself to me and my wife. We're trying to get as many Eastsiders over to our home to just get you a warm meal and, or a cold meal, something cool for the weather, or whatever have you, so that we can just get to know you on a deeper level. But keeping that in mind, and then considering that gas is going up and groceries are going up, and depending on your work field, your wages are down three to five percent. These are difficult times. And so I prayed and said, Lord, what would be something that I can encourage the brothers and sisters about, a sermon that kind of gives a solution that the culture doesn't have? And I thought it wise to encourage us with one of Jesus' teachings, and that is the secret to happiness. Interesting. Could Jesus really have the secret to happiness? <laughs> he does. You see, our culture has twisted many important and foundational principles, and there's very little that our present culture has not tainted. But chief among them is the idea of happiness. I'm convinced that there is no idea that has been more warped or twisted than the concept of happiness. Well, how do we define happiness in our culture today? Well, we define happiness as a sense of pleasurable satisfaction. That's what happiness is, according to our culture's definition. In our culture, we are conditioned to make happiness our main goal in life, aren't we? We are obsessed with it. Our culture is constantly in our ears saying, I know the secret to unlimited happiness. And thus, we spend our lives chasing after their proposed solutions. We may get the solution from Vogue magazine or the, or the Wall Street Journal or The Economist. We may get it from CNN or Fox News. We may get it from our favorite celebrity. But these are all myths. These are all solutions, allegedly, on how to achieve pleasurable satisfaction that never ends. We end up saying things to ourselves, and I'm included. I've not arrived. Note, anything I preach, I have not arrived at per perfecting it, <laughs> okay? It's by God's grace that a hypocrite can stand among you, you see? So I'm not exempt from this, but we end up saying things to ourselves like, if I can enter into the perfect relationship, then I'll be happy. If I get into this specific medical school or law school or business school or whatever it might be, then I'll be happy. If I have a child, right, in our case, we wanted a daughter, you know, Lord, then I'd be happy. Or if I move to a different location, oh, Lord, you know, I'll, I'll be happy then. Or if I lose the COVID weight that I <laughs> put on, I don't know if you're like me, then, then I'll be happy. I just need to get to that right size I've been thinking. I got to fit that one tux I used to fit. If I find a better job or buy a new car, get married, win the lottery, or retire, then finally, finally I'll be happy. But is it right to make our modern view of happiness the goal in life? I mean, it feels right. Everyone else is doing it. But am I to live this life to seek my own optimal happiness? Well, how can we evaluate the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world that teaches us that you must do what makes you happy and that this is a worthy going on life. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. How do we evaluate the wisdom of the world? Well, the proof is in the pudding. How well have we been doing so far? How well have we been doing so far? If you know me, I'm a, I like data. I like to, to get the facts, and much can be said on the facts, but one of the papers I want to uh, quote to you 
uh, or the research I want to give to you is one of my favorites that I've read because it goes back some time. According to a research paper published in 1980, people who lived in the 1950s in comparison to those in the 1980s were 10 times happier. Thus, from the 1950s to the 1980s, happiness had decreased tenfold, resulting in a higher percentage of depression. Today's research reports as of 2021 that we have been decreasing in happiness every generation since. How have we been doing at achieving this alleged goal? But how can this be? We're more technologically advanced than we've ever been. People are healthier, they're dying at an older age. We have more billionaires than ever. We have more knowledge. In fact, we have almost unlimited knowledge at our fingertips. Anything you want to know, you can Google it. Yet, according to the research, and I, I, will, show, I will show also to Jesus' teaching, we're no happier. In fact, we're worse off. Divorce rates are higher than they've ever been. We have more addicts, and depression has become so common that pharmaceutical companies are cleaning up like they've never cleaned up before. From just this evidence alone, one could conclude that living for your own happiness is a bad way to achieve it. From just this evidence alone. Our culture's wisdom is an illusion, my brothers and sisters. We have to shake off the world's view of reality. We have to shake it off. We're not, they're not living in the reality that God has made us. We have to shake it off. This wisdom of the culture is an illusion. Living your life to achieve a sense of pleasurable satisfaction guarantees that you'll be unhappy and even worse, that you'll be empty. But let me dissect our current view of happiness so you can see how the lie has crept into our hearts and what lies we're adopting. There are two things we need to note about our culture's view of happiness. Remember, that we define in our culture today happiness as pleasurable satisfaction. That's not what it's always been, but that's what we define it today. There are two things. We know from experience that happiness is ephemeral. That is, it's fleeting and always hungry. It's insatiable. There seems to be nothing that will keep a sense of pleasurable satisfaction that will endure without ever fading. That's the first thing, it's fleeting. The second thing no one talks about, it's amazing. In addition, consider this, pleasure has nothing to do with what is right or wrong. Remember, they're telling us happiness should be the guide in our life. But pleasure has nothing to do with what is right or wrong. Our happiness is always, defined in this way, is always about how we feel. The tyrant and the pervert take harm, take, take pleasure in harming others. Yet the focus of happiness gives no ethical solution. I need to make this clear. We're told to use as our guide a principle that cannot tell you whether your pleasures are right or wrong. It is indeterminate. And this should be the guide of our life. Do what makes you happy. Follow a principle that provides you no moral direction. But we're never told in our culture to do what is right. We're told, do what makes you happy. Well, I'm thinking about this. Whatever makes you happy. What, is, what do you want your children? Whatever makes you happy, my son, my daughter. That's a poor way to raise a child. It's an even poorer way to live a life. 
It's an even poorer way to live a life. But we're never told to do what is right or just or honorable, what is difficult or to persevere. Do what makes you happy. Imagine all the wonderful missionaries across the world if they were taught this sick doctrine of this culture that you must do what makes you happy. Do you think you're going to be happy in a third world country where the Christians are being oppressed? Do you think Jesus did what makes him happy? Where would your salvation be if Jesus adopted the same mindset that we have today? This is a poor way to live life. So my brothers and sisters, because happiness is fleeting, because it needs to be constantly fed, and because it is morally indeterminate, we must conclude that pleasure cannot be the sole guide to your life. Happiness, as our culture defines it, is not the road to a fulfilled life. But let us look at our passage again, and I will show you that Jesus doesn't have a solution in a sea of other solutions. He has the solution. Jesus doesn't teach you things that it's like, oh, a catalog. You can kind of pick and choose. Jesus always gives us the one right way, the one right answer, okay? It's never multiple choice with the Lord. So let's look at our passage one more again, as they say. Then he said to the crowd, <clears throat> if any of you wants to be my follower, my disciple, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? We need to note that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels because they can be read together because Matthew and Luke, they're built upon Mark, okay? And then Matthew and Luke also built some of their biography of Jesus off of another source. And so in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find this teaching. But commentators have noticed something interesting, that in all three gospels, this teaching comes after Jesus makes his identity clear. It comes after Peter's confession, the death and resurrection predicted, and then we get the pick up your cross bit in the passage. The timing of this teaching is trying to show us that this is indeed an essential teaching of the Christian faith. How to achieve true happiness is an essential teaching of the Christian faith. But many misunderstand this passage. Here's what Jesus is not saying, because if you're not careful, you, you would misread what the Lord is saying. Here's what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying to deny your passions or your dreams or your desires. He's not saying to be harsh to yourself and to become a doormat serving others with no thought of your own well-being or your family's well-being. Jesus is not saying that he doesn't want you to be happy. That's not what the Lord is saying. We got to be careful. We got to be careful. What Jesus is saying is that the only way to find out who you are Okay, the only way to be happy is not to focus solely on pleasure. Jesus is teaching us how to live a good life, how to truly be happy. But we first need to understand the classical definition of happiness. We have to understand the classical definition of happiness. 
Udaimonia. Udaimonia is a word that many might be familiar with. If you're one who studies classics, you know, you read Latin or Greek or you're a history, uh, you like ancient Greek history, Roman history, or if you're a, even a theologian who's widely read uh, or a um, philosopher, you'd be familiar with Udaimonia. This is a common word used, okay? This is the classical definition of happiness, Udaimonia. I quote now uh, J.P. Moreland, who's a Christian theologian and philosopher who's done extensive study on happiness. And here's what he says. This is very interesting. The classical understanding of happiness proclaimed by Moses, Solomon, Jesus, Aristotle, Plato, the church fathers and medieval theologians, and many more, is the understanding that has recently been replaced by pleasurable satisfaction. According to the ancients, happiness is a life well-lived a life of virtue and character, a life that manifests wisdom, kindness, and goodness. For them, the life of happiness, the life to dream and fantasize about, to hunger and seek after, to imitate and practice, is a life of virtue and character. At its core, such a life includes a very deep sense of well-being, but this sense should not be confused with pleasurable satisfaction. Jesus is teaching us how to achieve udamania, the good life. I love this classical definition, and I'm going to be using that word udamonia instead of happiness to contrast, because it will be confusing if I use the one word to mean two different things. It will be confusing to know the difference. So udamonia, when I use it, I mean to speak of virtue and character, the good life. And then when I say the term happiness, I'm going to mean how our culture defines it. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Udamania. E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-A. Udamania. It's like I'm at the spelling bee. Oh, one more time. Yes. E-U, it's a Greek word. E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-A. M-O-N-I-A, udaimonia. You know what's crazy is that before the 1800s, this was how people viewed and understood happiness, a life of virtue and character, before the 1800s. Even in the Constitution, fun fact, when it says in pursuit of happiness, it means to speak not of pleasurable satisfaction, but it's speaking of the right to pursue virtue and character in your life. That's a fun fact. We don't have time. Let me mosey. But to be clear, we have to contrast the two views so that it's, so that's very clear. Our culture's view of happiness is pleasurable satisfaction, and the classical view of happiness, which I think Jesus had in mind, udamonia, is the life of virtue and character. Let's go ahead and contrast the two with the slide. Okay, here's the difference. Our contemporary view of happiness is dependent on external circumstances and things. I'm only going to be happy if my marriage is good, if my children are behaving well, if the way the country is going is in my favor, if I have all that I desire, then I'll be happy. But you see, the classical view of happiness is not dependent on external things. It is dependent within your state. In other words, it springs from within. Our contemporary view of happiness is ephemeral and fleeting. It's like vapor. But the classical view of happiness is permanent and stable. 
the contemporary view of happiness is incompatible with suffering. You cannot be happy and suffer in our culture at the same time. Isn't that something else? But in the classical view, suffering is compatible with happiness because it produces temperance and patience and kindness and discipline. You see, our contemporary view of happiness, how do I achieve it? What's the strategy? You achieve happiness in our culture today by being self-absorbed. Focusing on yourself. How do I achieve what I want? But the strategy of the classical view, the way you achieve happiness is by self-denial and your eyes turned outward. Not inward, but outward. In our contemporary view of happiness, how do you know that you've succeeded? What is the outcome? Well, in our culture, you have succeeded at being happy when you become a celebrity. It produces all the likes you've ever wanted, all the friends you've ever wanted, all the things you've ever wanted. You are nothing more than a Kim Kardashian and Kanye West or whomever celebrity, you know, fill in the blank, I'm not certain of all of them. But that's when you've succeeded at our cultural happiness. It produces a celebrity. But the classical view, what Jesus has in mind, is that success with eudaimonia, success produces a hero. They're not liked in the culture. They're not favored in the culture. But when all is said and done, they are a hero. A few examples, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus Christ. Oh, they're popular today. But you have to remember, if you put yourself back in those times where they were, they were not popular. They were not loved. They were not venerated. They weren't looking for likes. If they had a Facebook account, they'd have very few friends and even fewer people that would want to admit that they knew them. But now today, it's, oh, well, man, oh, Martin Luther King Jr. on every street, and oh, I got, you know, I love this person, and then everybody and their mom pretends to be Christian. But he was crucified. A genuine life produces a hero, and God has called us to be heroes. So our present, yes, Lord, our present view of happiness has indeed left us empty. If you would allow me to quote somebody who I think is right on the money, Brother Plato, I don't know if you've ever read him, but Plato says, there is no question which a man of any sense could take more seriously than what kind of life one should live. We are, we have been discipled by our culture, and our culture has taught us many things, but it has not taught us how to live well. All we see is example after example of empty people pretending to be full and selfless people, selfless people, or excuse me, they're pretending to be selfless, but in the end, they're self-absorbed and conceited. Some might call it virtue signaling. So the key to happiness Pleasurable satisfaction, and the key to eudaimonia, key to both of them, is found in our present passage. But did Jesus really have in mind this sense of happiness? Did he have in mind, I'd hate to put on the Lord what he did not say? Because many who read this passage take a very different interpretation. Though I believe theirs may be valid, I think the Lord is hinting at something deeper that he's trying to get his children to see. Remember I told you to take a pen, in your, a mental pen on verse 25. Let's look at it now. 
of Luke 9, 23 to 25. We're going to look at verse 25. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? Lost or destroyed. We've got to focus there for just a moment. One can do a comparative analysis with the other, three, or other two synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what you'll discern is Luke says something different than the other two. Now, this is not uncharacteristic of Luke because he's a very good historian. He's very good. If you've read the Gospels together, you'll see that he, he covers more detail than the other Gospels do. He speaks of Jesus at 12, right? Um, he talks about other dimensions and ideas that have taken place. It's very cool and interesting. And so I like to think here, or rather I take cues from other commentators, that Luke is trying to get us to understand what Jesus was trying to say. You see from the language here, the idea is about finding yourself versus losing yourself. Now, the finding or losing yourself happens before you're destroyed. You lose yourself first, and then you're destroyed. We'll talk about that a little later, but that's crazy. But what does Jesus mean to say about losing yourself? He's saying that every one of you has a purpose. Every one of you has a life you're supposed to live that's not supposed to look like somebody else. And when you're trying to chase a life that's not yours, you're slowly losing who you are. This is the concept of eudaimonia, the good life. How do you live the good life? You first need to discover who you are. But Jesus, how do I discover who I am? Well, that's a good question. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Jesus is saying that you need to find your strengths. You need to find your skills. You need to find your desires. And then use that to serve him in his, use that to serve in his name. Isn't that interesting? Find out your passions, your gifts, your skills, your talents, and then you use that to serve in Jesus' name. It doesn't, it's not, he's not talking about the church. He's talking about finding yourself, the solution to happiness. What Jesus is saying is that our present view of happiness is a poor life goal. He's saying that by chasing pleasure, and this is implied, we'll lose ourselves. We must reach for something greater. We must look outward to something beyond ourselves. I mean, just think about it. Have you ever considered where all of our attention must be if happiness, that is pleasurable satisfaction, is our goal in life? Our attention must constantly be where? On ourself. Everything you do is for your happiness. You only do good to people because it makes you happy. But the moment it doesn't, you quit doing that. You're only in this marriage because right now it makes you happy. But when things get difficult, you're going to abandon ship. You're only at this job that you believe the Lord has called you to uh, because uh, you're happy. But when things go awry, you're going to give up. You're only in ministry or you're only wherever you might be because it gives you pleasurable satisfaction right now. But once that's gone, once the thrill is gone, they say, then you abandon ship. Jesus is saying that's not the goal. That's how you lose yourself. The self is a very poor site for finding meaning. Now, I got to be clear. I got to be clear. There's nothing wrong with pleasurable satisfaction or self-love. There's nothing wrong with that. We are created to be happy. We are created to live out eudaimonia, a virtuous, and character, a virtuous life with character, and we're, we're, we're meant to enjoy things. We're born to do that. 
God is happy. He wants his children to be happy. He wants us to enjoy food and friends and money and clothes and all the toys life brings. He wants us. It's when our happiness, it's when our pleasure is the main aim that we err. That's the dilemma, when that is the goal in life. By focusing on our own pleasurable satisfaction, it creates in us a virus of self-centeredness. But then, Quincy, I disagree. Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and deny yourself. Well, once again, Jesus does not mean to say, avoid fun and do things that make you miserable. (laughs) That's not what he's trying to say. He's rather saying, and 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 much more can be said, he's rather saying, find out what you're really good at. All the gifts you have, fun fact, they've been given to you on loan. All of your talents and gifts and skills and desires are from the Lord. And he's trying to see what you'll do with them. Develop them well. Use them well. How you deny yourself is by giving to others what Jesus has given you and living your life out on that. That's how you do it. Jesus' solution is a paradox. He says, when you live for yourself, we lose ourselves. When we live out our passions in the name of Jesus, we not only achieve eudaimonia, but we gain pleasurable satisfaction as a byproduct. It is a byproduct, not the aim. Let me give you an example to kind of make this clear, how pleasure is the byproduct and never the aim. You ever seen those little floaties in your eye? The, you know, those little, I don't know what they're called, the technical term, but you know those little, the little round ball thing? Have you ever tried to look at it? And every time you look at it, what happens? It, it's like you can never, you can never uh, get it. But some of you may have discovered, even some of you very young, that if I don't focus on it, if I look straight ahead, I'm able to, Get the speck in more focus. This is the same with pleasurable satisfaction. It is like that little eye floating. When you're trying to achieve it, when you're trying to live your life to gain it, you'll never ever approach it. It'll always feel like you're so close. It'll feel, that's the deception. You see, the enemy's good, he's good. It feels like I'm almost there. Because every time I'm trying to look at the floating, it's like, oh, I'm, I almost got it but I never do. I will waste my life trying to look at that speck. So it is with pleasure. By trying to achieve pleasure, you'll never get it. But if your eye, if your gaze, if your aim is to use your skills to the glory of God, you will hit it every time. That is the beauty of Jesus' teaching. When we are in a place when you are in a place, when all of us are in a place where our strengths are at their maximum degree for a higher purpose, then we'll finally succeed, at least begin the journey of getting rid of ourselves. I want to quote a neurologist and psychiatrist, Victor E. Frankel, who did some work on this. I want, this is amazing, because I, I love to give you some data. He says, happiness, this, he's not a Christian, okay? Happiness is the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. This is an atheist, my friends, and a neurologist and psychiatrist, not a theologian. He says further, this explains why, if he just read Jesus, he would have knew, but it's okay. This explains why so many of us aren't happy. 
We're our own biggest cause, the most important people in our lives, and we're way too small and powerless to create or sustain our own happiness. Amazing. So in summary, let me summarize all the things we've said so far. One of the essential teachings of the faith, the teaching that literally tells us how to live a good life, eudaimonia, is that if you want to find pleasurable satisfaction, you must live your life serving other people through your gifts and talents. From Luke 9, we learn that you could be given everything and still not find happiness. In the end, you lose yourself, and this is even before losing your soul. It's a double destruction. You die an unhappy life, a fleeting life, going from one false pleasure to the next. Or it can be a real pleasure, but it's not everlasting. But in the end, we lose our soul. There is a scholar by the name of Martin Seligman who is a psychologist. He's the world-leading psychologist on the study of happiness. He's a hardcore atheist, and he has the biggest lab in uh, at, uh, uh, Pennsylvania University, Penn State, on studying happiness. And so I, I read his work. Um, I, I'm very curious in this subject, and so I read a lot on this just for my own self. But I read his work, and he said something. His notes are amazing, and I can't say them all in detail, but let me summarize if, if you would allow me. Um, we all think that money would make us happier. Or at least we, we know, we say to ourselves, I know more money won't make me happy, but we're all willing to test the theory. <laughs> I know I am. I know it won't, but try me. You know, let's see. If, uh, you know, why not? Yeah, that's okay, we'll see. So Seligman went through a host of things that people would normally say might increase their happiness. He went through wealth. He says rich people on average are no happier than poor people. He went through high accomplishments and good things. This is kind of where I land. I'm a kind of an overachiever kind of guy, and I think, man, if I just keep on achieving, I'll be happier. Like, I'll feel good about myself. He says that has no power to raise your happiness. It's, it's, it's a joke. What about physical attractiveness? He says that doesn't have any effect either. Physical health even, he says. Perhaps the most valuable of all resource, resources, he says it barely correlates with happiness. Not, this is a study of an atheist. He's, he's not, uh, you know, on our side, if you will. There's a couple more papers I want to quote, and these are from the psychology, different psychological journals on happiness. And I just want to quote what they're saying. This is crazy. Jesus beat us to the punch, okay, but I want to quote what they're saying. There's another scholar, atheist. Actually, the obsession with happiness often thwarts happiness. One reason is that a mercantile society, like ours with the stores and things, dangles before us many fake promises of happiness linked to physical appearance, the consumption of objects, and social success. Those who yield will soon be stumbling from one unsatisfied desire to the next and thus from one frustration to another. Let me read one more quote. I have tons here, but I'm going to read two. Um, the good life, another paper, the good life consists in deriving happiness by using your signature strengths every day in the main realm of living. They spent thousands of dollars to write this study. They could have given it to me and I could have given them the answer. <laughs> the meaningful life, he says, or whoever it might be, the meaning of life adds one more component, using the same strengths to forward knowledge, power, and goodness. What can we conclude from all of this evidence outside of the scripture? That Jesus was right. Jesus is right. That the Christian 
Life is about serving others. And this is how we obtain eudaimonia, the good life. And then we get as a byproduct the pleasurable satisfaction that the world has been telling us that we need. In my closing, if we can have the praise and worship team, in my closing, we need to answer the question, Quincy, why should I live my life for another? I, I want to live my life for myself. Well, there are two answers, right? The first answer is real basic. You should live your life for others because Jesus Christ has lived his life for others, a.k.a. you and I. He had given everything he's worth so that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. The reason you don't have abundant life is because you keep seeking abundance in pleasure, not in your giftings and skills and passions that will ignite in you who you really are. Do not allow yourself to be lost. The second reason why you should give your life for others is this. It's the beauty of Jesus' teaching. It's a double blessing. By giving your life for others, Jesus is saying, we learn how to live life, and by doing so, we honor God and find happiness. And this is how we as the kingdom of God, this is how we can redeem happiness. This is how we can redeem happiness. The world has it backwards. The world says if you're searching for pleasurable satisfaction, you'll achieve it, and then when you have it, you can do good things. That's what it says, you know, oh, I don't, uh, you know, I can't get married right now, I need to build up my business. I need to seek what I want, I need to be happy. Marriage is only gonna get in the way, children are only gonna get in the way. Um, uh, uh, whatever the issue is, is only going to get in the way. And then, once I get what I want, all the pleasurable things, then I'll focus on being good to the world. I don't have that to give right now, I'm trying to buy this or that or the other. I'm trying to get everything I want, but then once I have this, I'll live a good life. Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying, live a good life now. Give, love, embrace uh, 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 everything you have. Give it. Now, no, don't be foolish now, but give what you're worth to the world, and as a byproduct, there shall be the happiness our culture desires. So here's our application. Here's our application. You can, yes, please, you can play light. If you're unhappy in here today, the way our culture defines it, if you find that you're unhappy and unsatisfied, it may not be due to your spouse. It may not be due to your children. It may not be due to your career. It may not be due to your church. It may be that you're living your life for yourself. That you're trying to maximize your own pleasure. And this may be a sign that you're not living out what God has given you for the benefit of others in his name. It's interesting how we Christians should be the happiest on earth because we have purpose. We know where the source, who the source is that gave us a way to live our life. But we're not sure. If you're in that place, what should you do? What should I do, Quincy? I, I do feel that. What should I do? Well, the first thing is you need to form a habit of not looking for your pleasure. Life is not about you. It's difficult, right, because our culture keeps telling us, do what makes you happy. And you've been doing this for how, who knows how many years. And Jesus is saying, deny that. Do what you're born to do. Then this happiness you seek will be a byproduct. So find a way, find a way to not focus on your own pleasure. 
Some practical things is to practice fasting. Fast, search, seek. Spiritual discipline of silence, spiritual discipline of submission. We can talk about these. I'm a part of this community, so we can talk about these. The second thing you need to do, all of us, evaluate what your strengths and talents are and skills are. Evaluate. Ask brothers and sisters. Get into community. Once you know, take that data and bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, what can I do? How can I serve this world? If you're a physician or a police officer or a plumber, that could be of the Lord. And serve. This is your calling. Live out your calling. Live out your vocation. And for the non-believers who might be among us or watching online or wherever, if you want to be happy, come to Jesus. There is no such thing of unceasing pleasure without being in Jesus. You've heard the research. Much more can be said. I want to end with a quote from Martin Seligman, who is an atheist, for those who might be atheists out here, of how compelled he is on this research, what Jesus already has taught us. He says, I've never been able to choke down the idea of a supernatural God who stands outside of time, a God who designs and creates a universe. As much as I wanted to, I have never been able to believe there was any meaning in life beyond the meaning we choose to adopt for ourselves. But now, after all of my research, I'm beginning to think I was wrong. My brothers and sisters, if you want true happiness, if you want true udamunia, as pleasure as a byproduct, Jesus is the only way. Let us redeem happiness, my brothers and sisters. Since this is the surest way to become, since the surest way to become happy is to give your life for yourself. Amen. Let us worship. Amen. Amen.